Bibles, you can turn to the last chapter in Mark. We are on sermon number 65, over a year's worth of, over a year worth of sermons, and uh, this is our 65th, and man, time well spent. There's a lot of ways that you could probably legitimately complain about me as a pastor. My jokes aren't that great. I, I don't dress that cool. And I, you, you could complain about me in a lot of ways that I would have to agree with you. One way, though, that you can't complain is to say, man, my pastor doesn't preach enough sermons over Jesus. Because, uh, no, we've, we'll spend years doing that, right? We'll spend every Sunday doing that. And we've been doing that, all uh, 65 of these sermons. And uh, what, what a worthwhile time it's been in the Gospel of Mark. Anytime I get to the, to the end of a book of the Bible, I almost get a little anxious. I get so uh, locked into one book, I, I, when, I'm, when I'm teaching out of one book in the Bible, that I, I just, I get so comfortable there. And it's only when you get to the end of a teaching series about a book of the Bible that you feel qualified and ready to preach about that book of the Bible. I can tell you, like, now I'm ready to preach through Mark, now that I've preached through Mark. <laughs> but it, uh, I, I love locking in to study for a long season of time in one place in the Bible. That's just how my brain works, and I love being a part of the church that loves to do that. Um, but today, in this final chapter, um, 16, I, I got to cover a couple of things real quick. Have you ever seen a movie that has multiple endings? Like you get to the end of the movie, and, and there's one ending, and, the, and then you realize, oh wait, it's not over, there's like more ending coming. That's kind of what's happening, but not really in this book. But if you notice, when you're looking in your Bibles, at chapter 16, you may notice some brackets coming up in the text. So you see verses 1 through 8 there, and then after verses 1 through 8, you may have a message from the translators of your Bible. Mine says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. And so regardless of the translation that you're holding in your hand, I'm using the ESV, regardless of the translation that you're holding, you may see some sort of bracket or message from the translators that just throws up a flare that says 9 through 20 may or may not have been in the original Greek text. Now, for some, maybe that's like, oh man, uh, is, that, is that a cause for concern? Should I be worried here? Well, you can trust your Bibles, and I trust my Bible dearly. I believe that it is the infallible Word of God. I believe that it's inerrant. I believe that it's trustworthy in its original form, okay? So we are not reading our Bibles in its original form, are we? No, we're reading an English translation of that Bible. And so we believe, as Christians, according to the Bible, right, we believe that those apostles were inspired by the Holy Spirit, carried along by the Spirit, to write down the words of God to edify us, to give us everything we need, equip us to live the Christian life and to know what to believe and to know what to do and how to do it. And so we believe that wholeheartedly in its original form. But we also know that in the first and second centuries, there was no Xerox machines, right? People had to write down copies of these old or these new testament books they had to write down these letters and make copies and thousands of copies were made and and that's how they circulated around those different churches these scribes that were copying down this information and so when we are reading our english translation of the bible what's happening is we have gathered all of these ancient 
first and second century copies of the New Testament, and we are translating them into English so that you and I can read them because none of us here, to my knowledge, speak Greek, right? And so as we dig up and find older and older manuscripts, here's what we do. We take those manuscripts and we compare them to everything that we have, and we see if they line up. And it's miraculous, man, when you see so many of these ancient copies, thousands of these ancient copies that are compared side by side. I mean, it's incredible. It is miraculous how they match up so perfectly. I mean, you may be reading along, and, and in one copy it says uh, Jesus Christ, and, the, and in this copy it says Christ Jesus. But doctrinally and theologically, these are matching up incredibly well. But what happened was, as we're finding earlier and earlier copies of this, of these, uh, you know, of, of the uh, New Testament letters and the, and the New Testament Gospels, we notice that the earliest copies don't contain verses 9 through 20. And so this helps me, as a skeptic, trust my Bible more. This is one thing I really appreciate about Christians. We're able to say, hey, you know what? Some of the earliest copies don't include 9 through 20. Maybe we should let everybody know that so that we can think about this collectively. And I like that. I, I just like that Christians are honest about that. Now, we're going to get into verses 9 through 20 next week more in depth. And so I'm going to give you some more details regarding why that's bracketed and what we should be thinking about that reality. So we're going to talk more about that next week. But with that said... Verses 1 through 8 that we're covering today could be the technical ending of the Mark teaching series. So it could be that, since I'm covering verses 1 through 8, technically we are completing our study of the inerrant original word given to the apostles. But we're going to still study that verses 9 through 20 because, spoiler alert, the information we find in 9 through 20 is found elsewhere in the New Testament anyway. It just may not have been in Mark's original copy or original penned letter that he wrote. Okay, So we'll get into that next week. So that's just a little caveat I wanted to put out there. Uh, and we're going to get into the first eight verses here of chapter 16 today. So the timeline. Here's where we left off. We've been studying the, the timeline step by step how the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus occurred. Well, where we left off, it was Good Friday. We call it Good Friday because it's good that Jesus died on the cross, that atoned, he atoned for all of our sins. That's a good thing, so we call it Good Friday. But if you were in the moment, it didn't feel that good. And we got to look at all these uh, elements surrounding the, the mockery, the torture, and the crucifixion of Jesus. And isn't it amazing how many of these events that have changed the entire world happened in just a few hours? On Good Friday, Jesus is actually hanging on the cross by 9 a.m. He was only up there for six hours. From noon to three, it was completely dark. And then we see that after he dies, Joseph of Arimathea he was on the Jewish council. He was a leader who was a supporter and secretly a, a disciple of Jesus. He asked Pilate for permission for the corpse of Jesus. Pilate was shocked that he was already dead, and so he had to confirm his death with the soldiers, the centurion that witnessed it, the centurion that said, truly, this is the Son of God. And so Joseph of Arimathea, along with another Jewish council leader named Nicodemus, 
who provided spices for his burial. They took the corpse of Jesus to the tomb that Joseph of Arimathea purchased new. Nobody had been buried in this tomb before. And so rather than use it for his own family, he decided to donate this to Jesus that he could be buried there. And we see that Mary Magdalene, along with all of the other Marys, <laughs> I won't get into that, I won't rehash all of the Mary debates, but they take note of where Jesus is buried. And so all of that took place on Friday. So at this point in time, the, the Jews who were in leadership there, it's mission accomplished. This is exactly how they wanted things to play out. They wanted to manipulate the crowds to crucify Jesus. They wanted to manipulate Pilate into crucifying Jesus. And they did it. They got Jesus on that cross and crucified before Sabbath. Remember, this is Passover week and Sabbath is Saturday. They want to get all this done and, and, and be through with it so that they can get back to the Passover festival and celebrate the Sabbath during the Passover week. So they had to get Jesus dead and out of the way before Sabbath day. And they did it. They did it. But they take one more precautionary step. So I'm going to read to you quickly two places in Matthew with two bits of information that Mark doesn't mention, just so we can keep some of that timeline straight. So when you're in Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 through 66 tells us about this one extra precautionary step that the Jewish leaders take, and it's the only thing that happens on Saturday. This is the only event that takes place on the Sabbath. This is the next day that is after the day of preparation, I'm talking about the Sabbath, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So one precautionary step that those Jewish leaders take, let's go to Pilate and say, hey, listen, he said he was going to die and rise again. Now, it's funny, when they were getting him in trouble, when they were trying to charge him with, uh, with uh, starting an insurrection before Pilate, do you remember what they did? Hey, this guy said he's going to destroy the temple, and then he's going to build it back again. He, he's an insurrectionist. That's how they got him in trouble. But they know, according to this, they knew he was talking about his body, not the temple. They knew he was going to, or he was prophesying that he would die and he would rise again. So they are taking a precautionary step to make sure no hoax takes place. They go to Pilate. Hey, can we have a guard uh, of soldiers in front of this tomb? And Pilate said, you already have a Roman uh, guard that you have access to. Use them, whatever, just do whatever you want. Get out of my face. He's tired of them. He's tired of talking to them. Pilate can't stand those Jewish leaders. So they take those guards, they put them in front of the tomb, and they seal the tomb. Now, don't think like they didn't like pour concrete and seal it secure so you can never open that tomb again. They seal it, and think of sealing a letter so you know if it's been opened or not. So they put the guards there, they seal the tomb in that way to know, uh, so they, they can know if it's ever been tampered with. And now it's Sunday morning. Now it's Sunday morning, 
Mary Magdalene and the other Marys are headed that way. The sun isn't even quite up yet. It's not quite over the horizon. It's, it's pretty dark out, actually. And Matthew gives us one more detail that we don't have in Mark's gospel. And it comes in Matthew 28, verses 2 through 4. Here, let me just tell you this. It says, And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So as Mary Magdalene and the other Marys are headed to the tomb, in the, in the dark of the morning, as the sun is barely starting to come over the horizon, an angel descends from heaven, rolls back the stone, and sits on the stone. The soldiers see that, and they pass out in fear. Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene and the other Marys, they didn't see that part. They're walking along, just headed to the tomb. And here's where we're going to pick up in chapter 16. Let's just take verses 1 through 3. When the Sabbath was passed, take note, we're on Sunday now, first day of the week. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So these three ladies who witnessed the crucifixion, who took note of where Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus buried Jesus, they wait all day on the Sabbath because they're not allowed to work and do anything on the Sabbath. They finally get to Sunday morning and it's the first thing they do is jump out of bed before the sun's even up to head to the tomb. And, every, and what they say tells us everything about what was on their mind. What do they say? As they're headed to the tomb, what do they say? Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So as they're headed to the tomb, the last thing that's on their mind is that Jesus has risen from the dead. They fully expect him to be dead because they're worried about who's going to roll away this stone once we get there so that we can even pay our respects and honor him with a proper burial. Who's going to roll away the stone so that we can even get in there? I'm not sure. I guess we'll figure it out when we get there. And as they are uh, headed in that direction, they notice that it's open. So no nobody's expecting this. I think that's a really important thing to, to note about the resurrection. None of the disciples expected Jesus to be alive and raised again. None of these women expected Jesus to raise again. They all expected him to be dead on Sunday because he died on Friday. So you think if the disciples were expecting Jesus to resurrect, if they truly and really believed this, wouldn't they be there? Wouldn't they be there ready? I mean, oh, hurry up, guys, come on. This is the day he's supposed to rise again. Let's go there, and, and we can be waiting on him so we can be the first people he talks to when he comes up out of there. They didn't expect it, and that makes sense. When you study all the Gospels, every time Jesus prophesied his upcoming death and resurrection, the disciples were not on board, were they? Peter argues with them. That's not going to happen. What are you talking about? No way. They, they, get behind me, Satan. That's when that conversation took place. And every time th that Jesus prophesies his death and resurrection, they, they just either argue with him, they're frustrated about it, or they just completely ignore him. 
They just, they're not on board. So it makes sense that they're not expecting him to resurrect because they really didn't know what Jesus was talking about. They couldn't fully wrap their minds around the, what he was prophesying in the moment. They just believed he was dead and it was over. Now, this is where critics of the Bible like to come in and say, no, this had to be a hoax. This is the greatest hoax of all mankind. There's never been a hoax greater than this. And they got us, they duped us all. And here we are 2,000 years later still being duped by this ancient hoax that took place 2,000 years ago. But when you think about that, it just doesn't add up. I mean, if this is an elaborate hoax orchestrated by the disciples, what did that planning session sound like? Okay, guys, step one. Okay, how are we going to pull off this hoax to turn the world upside down? I know. Let's take Jesus to Jerusalem during Passover and aggravate everyone to the point in which they brutally murder him on a cross. Sounds like a great idea. That's step one. It doesn't make any sense. You you wouldn't do this on purpose, but let's just say that was step one. Step two, we need to convince some of the members of the Jewish council to donate a tomb so that we can we can hide him in there or maybe take him in there after we get him down from the cross and revive him in that tomb. Some critics of the Bible actually go with the revive uh, theory that Jesus wasn't completely dead, but they, they got him down off that cross, took him to the, ter- to the tomb, and nursed him back to health in the matter of not, e- not even full 24, three 24-hour day periods, right? But that's what some critics say. Or... They'll say, well, well, we'll take Jesus' body down, and we'll, we'll get a tomb, we'll say he's in there, but we'll actually, we'll actually just burn his body, actually throw it in the Gehenna, that, that fire pit where they threw their trash, and we'll destroy all of the evidence, but say he resurrected from that tomb, and, and we'll not give him that proper burial that is so important to everything we believe in our culture. Right? And well, step three. Ooh, step three. Okay, here's the really important part, guys. Once we pull off step one and step two, Let's have a bunch of women be the first people who witness the resurrection. And then that'll be the people that start the story that Jesus rose from the grave. A bunch of women to be the witnesses. That would be, that might be the uh, craziest part of the hoax theory. If you were fabricating a lie and you were creating a hoax, you're right, when you, when you, when you fabricate a lie, you want to, you want to tell a lie that's believable. You want to tell a lie that, that appears to have credibility. When you're lying to someone, as you all have before, right? Let's not pretend like we've never lied. You want to create a lie that's, that's believable and that's, that appears credible. And, and you don't want to put any obstacles in anyone's way to not believe your lie. Well, by having a bunch of women being the witnesses to the angel and to the resurrection of Jesus, for the, for the story to be uh, to have that as its foundation, as its origin, that would be a terrible idea in that day and age and in that cultural climate because women had no credibility. In the court of law, women would never testify. You would never use the testimony of a woman in court. Are you nuts? You would never do that in their society, in their day. You may as well have a criminal or a slave or a four-year-old give their testimony as, a, the, as soon as you'd have a woman give their testimony. You may say, hey, easy, that's sexist. Yeah, it is. 
and it's history. That's the way the world worked in that time. You would never do that. You would never do that. That would, that would steal away from the credibility of the story. But honestly, for me, as, as you know, I, I, I am just a skeptical guy. I, I like to, to just question everything I hear. This actually helps me as a skeptic. It helps me believe because you would never start a lie like that. The fact that they're honest about the women being the first witnesses to the resurrection, that actually brings credibility to the story because it would seem like this otherwise unnecessary obstacle to put in the way of someone believing your lie. But if this is an elaborate hoax, let's just, for the, for the sake of thought here, if this is just some elaborate hoax, what's the final step? What's the end game here? What are they gaining from this hoax? I mean, once they establish the, the lie with a bunch of women, we're going to stick to the story so that everybody hates us and brutally kills us just like they did Jesus. Sometimes even more. Hey, guys, if we get this hoax successful enough, we'll, we'll have all of our lives completely ruined. They'll, they'll take us away from our families. They'll ruin any comfort and peace that we'll ever have a chance at. And we'll be killed in ways that are unthinkable and even worse than what Jesus went through in some cases. Sound like a plan? Yes, let's do it. Right? I mean, if it's a hoax, it just doesn't make any sense. It's just the hoax theory isn't believable to me because it's just so outrageous. The obstacles you have to get over, what would incentivize these men to ruin their lives in the way that they seemingly did? I mean, if I were to tell you, hey, I want to start a new movement this week, and uh, everybody's going to hate us, and we're all going to die, who's with me? <laughs> I doubt I'm going to get a lot of traction, right? It's going to be a small church next week. But trust me, if you have any questions, ask these women over here. Uh, let's do this. <laughs> well, the truth, of course, is that this is not a hoax. And these followers of Jesus, they weren't expecting Jesus to rise from death to life. They got to this tomb and they were worried that they weren't even going to get the stone rolled away in, or, in order to honor him in the way that they had planned out in their minds. But when they get there, here's what they saw. Look at verses 4 through 6. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where you laid him? So when approaching, approaching the tomb, confused at how they're going to get this stone rolled away, they see that it's already open. They're startled by that. They go investigate that. Now, I would encourage you, when I preach through Matthew and when I preach through John, one thing that I did is I, I wanted to make sure and, and to get all of these resurrection accounts from all four Gospels, because the resurrection account obviously is in all four Gospels. And when you line them all up and you start reading all of these accounts, there are some differences there. And it can be difficult to reconcile some of these uh, differences, but definitely not impossible. There's a, a very reasonable way they can all fit together. But I'm not going to—I spent time doing that to help us get how those match up when I went through Matthew and when we went through John. I'm not going to do that today because we're in Mark. And so this time around, I just want to focus on the, on the facts that Mark gives us, and he gives us the fewest amount of details of any of the Gospels when it comes to the resurrection. 
Shocker, right? This is the efficient gospel. This is the immediately gospel. Mark doesn't have time for all of those details. He's trying to get to the point. He wants us to know that when these women uh, enter the tomb, they, they see, or they see a, man, a young man sitting there. Wait, I thought it was an angel. He doesn't take time to t tell us it was an angel. Right? I thought there was two of them when we were reading the other Gospels. He doesn't have time to tell us about all of the angels there or that they're angels at all. This is the immediately Gospel. He's trying to get us to the main thing he's trying to get us to. So in Mark's Gospel, he tells us about an encounter uh, with this young man, but the clues that he's an angel are all right there in the text. If you pause and look, he's wearing a white robe. Whenever they, whenever they encounter him, they're startled, they're scared. He has to tell them, don't be afraid, do not be, alar do not be alarmed. This is a classic angel encounter experience in the Bible. Every single time someone encounters an angel, they're terrified. They're worried for their life. And the angel has to say, hey, don't be afraid. I'm not going to kill you. It's, it's terrifying. So all of these ingredients are here, but Mark doesn't want us to stop and think about those things. He wants us to get to the point that Jesus is not there. He is not in the grave. He has risen. And that what is what the angel is there to do. What angels always do. They're messengers. They're there to tell these ladies. He's there to tell these ladies he's risen. He is not here. And the message isn't just for you. It's for others as well. Read verse 7. But go, tell to his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So he instructs them to go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is not here. He's going to go ahead of them to Galilee. Jesus did just tell them that back in chapter 14. We studied that. He's going to go ahead of them there. Matter of fact, we've already studied the moment in which he does do that. You read that in the last chapter of the Gospel of John, where Jesus was there in Galilee ahead of them and, and interacts with them there. Well, Mark doesn't have time for any of that. Mark says, whenever this angel talks to them, says, go tell the disciples, and, and make sure you tell Peter. Did you notice he points? Why, why point out Peter? Because Peter needs this. Doesn't he need this so badly? Like, think of everything Peter's been through. He's just had a heck of a time. You know, he's went from lopping a guy's ear off at the arrest to sneaking around the courtyard of the high priest, denying knowing Christ, screaming at them, cursing at them for even insinuating that he was associated with Jesus at all. I have no idea who that guy is. And just yelling, probably cursing at them for even making the claim. I mean, he's a wreck. He's a wreck. Remember, after he denies Jesus three times, you remember the look we talked about? He's screaming and yelling and cussing at these people for, for claiming that he knew Jesus. And as he's doing this, Jesus is being escorted through the courtyard and makes eye contact with Peter. Peter's devastated. He's crushed. And he's running away. So when this angel appears to these women, hey, make sure and tell the disciples that Jesus has risen. Make sure you tell Peter, especially. He needs this. And then what we read next, remember might be the last verse that was in the original gospel of mark maybe so think about that for a second let's take verses 9 through 20 and say they're not there let's consider the possibility at least that verse 8 is the last verse 
in Mark's gospel. Here's what it says. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Is that the end? And that's it. Is, is that the ending? Like this big, this big, like climax, it's incredible that everything that Jesus has prophesied has now taken place. He did rise from the grave, and they were afraid. And then that's it. Maybe. I think it fits. I'm going to make an argument today that it fits, that this is probably the last verse in Mark's gospel, even though we are going to consider if it's not next week. It says, they were trembling and they were astonished and they were afraid. I think that fits as an ending to Mark's gospel because that's how Mark communicates. One of the benefits of preaching through a book of the Bible from start to finish and taking your time and looking under every rock and considering every sentence and every Greek word that's being used is that you learn a certain writing style. You all have your favorite authors out there that you read, and they have a style, and you like to read their stuff because of the style of their writing. It appeals to you. It makes sense to you. Well, when, when we read through and study through different books of the Bible, while we know God inspired every word, the Holy Spirit carried them along. This is the infallible and errant word of God. While we know that is true and God is ultimately the author of the Bible, he uses these human authors to write his word, and their personalities and their writing styles come through. When you're reading Paul's letters, he has a writing style that's very unique to him. When you read something that Peter wrote, I think it's pretty obvious. When you read through Mark, you get used to his style of writing and his efficiency and his shock factor and his... Uh, his, his uh, desire to expedite you through this gospel message, it makes sense that this is the ending because this is how he talks as we go along. Let me give you some examples. Back in Mark chapter 4 verse 41, this is just after Jesus calms the storm. They're in the boat, they think they're going to die. Jesus calms the storm. And the last detail we're given is this, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this then that the, even the wind and the sea obey him? And then that's it. It's like this big, they're scared, they're astonished, they're asking a question, and Mark's like, okay, we gotta move on. I gotta tell, I got something else to tell you. And then he gets to, cha to chapter five, verse 15. This is just after Jesus heals the man possessed with the demon legion. Well, after that happens, this is the last detail we're given. It says, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had been uh, who had had legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid okay let's get to the next story that's it that's where mark stops he has no conclusion it's just like they're afraid they're terrified they're astonished moving on mark chapter 5 later in, in that same chapter in verse 33 this is after jesus uh is touched by the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years she touches his garment and then she tries to slip away and hide she has faith that even if she could just touch the hem of his garment she would be healed and then she was and jesus is like i felt the power go out from from me who did this and the last detail we're given there is that she she came in fear and in trembling and fell down before him and then that's it in verse 42, he raised the 12-year-old girl back to life. And at the end of that story, they were immediately overcome and amazed. And then Mark just moves on. 
Mark's chapter 6, verse 50, Jesus walks on water. This is incredible. And at the end of it, we're just told they were utterly astounded. And that's it. He just moves on. Mark chapter 9, Jesus is prophesying about his death and resurrection. He does the same thing in, in chapter 10, verse 32. And when he's done prophesying about these things, they're just they're in fear and amazement. They're astonished. And then Mark just moves on. Mark chapter 11, he's teaching in the synagogue. Or I'm sorry, he's teaching in the temple, rather, there in Jerusalem. All of these things are incredible. And it just says at the end of all of his teaching, all of these people, they were just astonished at his teaching. And then Mark moves on to the next fact. Because that's how Mark writes. He wants us to know that the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, as it was playing out, it completely stunned everyone. It stopped them in their tracks. It stopped them in such a way that they had to do something about it. They, had, they were forced to process it. There's no way anyone could ignore Jesus. It was too amazing. It, it just totally shocked them, and they had to stop and think critically about what they just saw, about what they just heard. Because Jesus was the Messiah, according to Mark, that nobody expected, but yet the Messiah that fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies about God's Son. It stunned them when they witnessed the, or the, these things about Jesus. And so as, when Mark is writing to us, he is presenting Jesus just like it played out in real life, just like how it played out in the, in the front of people's eyes. He wants his gospel to land on you like Jesus' ministry landed on the people who witnessed it. Just amazement. It's stunning. And so this is how the immediately gospel hits you. It's how it hits our hearts. This happened, and, and then people their minds were just short-circuited. And then this happened, and it changed the way everybody thought about this. And then Jesus taught this, and it totally flipped their world upside down, and they didn't know what to think about it. And, it, and, and it, the, the religious establishment of that day, they, they just, it blew their minds. And then Jesus taught this, and then he did this. That's how Mark works. And so, again, when something so unexpected happens in life, and it just stops you in your tracks, you, you've all, you've all, experienced a moment like that probably if we stood here and thought what what is a moment that hit you like that in your life whether it be good or bad you can all think about one of those moments that just came out of nowhere seemingly and it stopped you and you had to think about it critically you had to process it for it to make any sense and for it to impact you in a way that you could carry on you couldn't ignore it well that's what Jesus did to people when he lived around them. This, Mark is saying, hey, this Jesus, the one who preached about God's coming kingdom, the one who raised people from the dead, the one who healed the sick, the one who walked on water, the one who calmed the storms, this Jesus, the one who challenged all of the religious establishment, this Jesus, the one who said he would die and on the third day rise again, guess what? He did die, and he did rise again, which means everything that he taught and everything that he did has purpose and meaning. It means it's all true. If Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, none of that matters. None of that is worth anything if he didn't raise from the dead. 
or in the way Paul would say it, all of your beliefs are futile. So it's all ridiculous. We are to be pitied more than anyone if he didn't raise from the dead. That's why we take a day every year, call it Easter, and think about the resurrection. Of all the things we teach about the Bible, we want to make sure and make that one of the most routine things that we talk about, the resurrection of Jesus. Because if it didn't happen, none of that matters. Nothing in the Bible matters if Jesus didn't resurrect. But if he did resurrect, everything matters. Every detail of his life matters. Every miracle matters. Every teaching point matters. This is how it's supposed to hit us. It's supposed to stop us and make us, force us to do something with Jesus. You can't ignore Jesus. What are you going to do with it? And I hope that when we consider this ending, it's hitting you like that. What will you do? Will you just carry on with life as it is? Will you begin to live differently in light of this reality? Will it change you? Is this just information for you? Is that what you appreciate about the Bible? You just like the information? It seems like some people just enjoy the, the thrill of the hunt. They like the information. They like to seek, but they never find. They have no intention of finding. They just like to seek. Some, some people treat the Bible like that, and they never get anywhere with it. They just read and read and read, and, and, they, and they think it's neat how doctrine and theology works, and they think it's fascinating uh, how the archaeological information matches up with what happens in the text, and, and they think, they think uh, religion is fascinating in and of itself. They like to have their emotions stirred, but it never really results in finding anything. Those type of people are the most frustrating to me. But what will you do with Jesus? Will you actually surrender to this Messiah? Will you actually devote your life to it? Will you actually apply the reality of the resurrection of Jesus to your life daily? To submit to it, to repent, and to believe? The end of Mark's gospel, if it is verse 8, it's just staring at you, it's glaring at you, as in, I rushed through this entire gospel message to give you all the facts to stun you. And now it's just glaring at you. What are you going to do? It's your move. That's what Mark's saying to us. It's your move. Will you repent and will you believe? And if it hits you in a way in which you've been made new in Christ, you'll never be the same because you won't be able to stand being the same. You'll always want to pursue God's holiness. You'll always want to pursue his kingdom. No matter if times are good or if they're really bad, like with Joseph of Arimathea, nothing makes sense, everything's bad, but he's still looking for the kingdom, and he found it in Jesus, so he's just honoring him in practical ways. Is that going to be you? Is that how the gospel impacts you? Let's pray and consider these things. Lord, again, we thank you for the gospel of Mark Lord, I thank you for uh, being able to think critically about this passage with, a, with your body, to be able to examine the text. Uh, Lord, if verses 9 through 20 really are a part of your um, original content through Mark, through Peter's testimony, Lord, I pray that I didn't do any harm to your gospel today by uh, considering otherwise. Uh, but Lord, we're just so grateful for this account and cherish every one of these moments 
Uh, but Lord, I pray that we would be impacted by this in a way that we would take action, that we wouldn't just be stunned in, and paralyzed into doing nothing, but that we would be stunned in such a way that it will cause us to think differently, to live differently, to pursue change, to pursue holiness. Lord, we all need to pursue that so badly. We have reason to. We have hope in order to pursue a life like that because of your resurrection. We're not pursuing perfection on our own, Lord. We're pursuing your glory, putting it on display for your sake. For It's, it's not about us. Lord, help us to live that truth today and to, to be nourished in a time of communion. And it's in your name, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. Mm-hmm.